Hey guys, JDB here. I recently started working with a client, a therapist named Rachel Bernstein, who deals with cults and deprogramming and manipulative behavior, and she's a really fascinating woman, and I produced a podcast for her called Indoctrination, and I think y'all will really dig it. This episode is an interview with Jamie DeWolf, who is the great-grandson of L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of the Church of Scientology, and whew... That is one fucked up cult. So, hope y'all enjoy this, and if you dig it and want to subscribe to it, you can at patreon.com slash indoctrination, or just subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, anything you want. So, thanks for listening, and enjoy. From Struggle Session Studios in Los Angeles, California, this is Indoctrination. Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. This week, we have a special guest, Jamie DeWolf. He's a filmmaker, performer, producer, writer, storyteller, vaudevillian, activist, teacher, and all-around fascinating and really good guy. He's also the great-grandson of L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, and he has to carry around that legacy. I had a great time talking with him. Come listen in. I am so excited to have Jamie DeWolf with me in the studio today. Welcome, Jamie. Hi there. Hi. So it's so nice of you to be spending the time here. And I know you have a lot of stories to share. And you're a storyteller on top of everything else. <laughs> but I was hoping to be able to talk to you about some of your uh, family history, but also about what you're doing now. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what mischief you're up to today? Well, by family history, I'm assuming you probably don't know, want, to, want to know about my great-grandfather that mostly drove a Greyhound bus for most of his life. People never ask about that side of the family. Oh, really? You must be referring to my <laughs> other great-grandfather who happened to start one of the most carnivorous cults of the last century, good old Scientology. Mm-hmm. The monster that will not die, Frankenstein, that still lurches forward, seizing every dollar it can out of its last dwindling members. But for the first time in my life, it's so exciting of the actual possibility that I may watch its final collapse. So I, I never, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I didn't know if it was possible. You know, these days it's, it's different. I mean, because you, they have all that money. So where's it going to go? Right. But uh, yeah, so uh, L. Ron Hubbard's my great grandfather. L. Ron Hubbard Jr. was my grandfather. And his first child was my mom. And I was her first child. And so I was the first of all my cousins to start asking around all them dangerous questions like, uh, what's this Scientology thing I keep hearing about? <laughs> like, don't, don't bring it up around your granddad. So uh, Elrond was already in hiding by the time I was born in 1977. Mm. And I grew up with my grandfather who was actively at war with his father. And they were sort of locked in this kind of really dangerous end game where the son was trying to flush his father out of hiding literally by by litigating him. Um, in my story, I call it litigated the Holy Ghost to prove he still had flesh, that he was trying to force him out right. of, uh, to prove that he was still alive. And it left Scientology in a really dangerous position because Junior was basically claiming that bring him forth, 
because he's either dead mm-hmm. or he's lost his mind. And you guys are basically exploiting him and he's gone crazy. And he wasn't dead, but he had totally lost his mind. So, <laughs> so I mean, they were left with a real game of chicken. And actually, I, I honestly believe that that was really the chance that David Miscavige saw to take power because he was one of the only conduits and connection to the outside world. And so he really controlled the flow of information. Mm-hmm. He controlled behind the curtain of knowing all the crisis and the dangers that they were facing from lawsuits. And he had to figure out what happens when this guy does die and he carries mm-hmm. on. And I really think that's, that's that's how he took the reins. And I think that, that that little time period and that transfer of power is really how we get to this horrific <laughs> continuing epilogue of awful where it, Miscavige continues to just pound the same scripture and screed, you know, of this ghost who's gone. Right. Right. You know, when you see pictures of your great grandfather later on in his life and he's looking so disheveled and uh, disheveled, rotten teeth, hair is shot. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, I mean, he's gone. I mean, it was also, too, I mean, according to people around in the, in the end that, you know, I mean, he had, basically had a stroke and kept going and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, broken his arm and had kept mm-hmm. going in a motorcycle crash. And, and, you know, whether good or bad, that he at some point still believed in some semblance of what he was saying. Yeah. So I get asked that all the time, right? People are like, you know, oh, come on. He had to know that it was it was all lies, all con. And I was like, eh, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I think Elrond was pretty close to to Jim Jones in the end where it's like there's there's a certain huckster quality to them where they they are able to understand the showmanship the artifice that's that's right. necessary for them to continue this masquerade right. of forcing this false biography on you and trying to maintain these constant lies but i think there's also a point where you just get so detached from reality you haven't been around anybody but your own acolytes for so long that you're connection to reality it just becomes severed and you're sort of free floating Mm, that's so well said i think you know when you walk into a building and you see all these naval accolades (laughs) knowing that you know (laughs) he was dishonorably discharged every uh, accolade it's just he was just the most high achieving man on earth yeah when when i when i try to give a list (laughs) uh, to people if they don't know a damn thing right or they've just sort of heard Mm -hmm. of scientology they heard of tom cruise so when I try to explain to them the litany mm-hmm. of Elrond's achievements mm-hmm. according to Elrond, mm-hmm. it's 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 uh-huh. like it's it takes it takes like ten minutes. I mean, when you go through the Elrond Hubbard life exhibit, it's like, well, where do we start? You know, blood brother to this you know fictitious Indian mm-hmm. tribe, and born on a ranch, and born to a tycoon and you know and then becomes the youngest eagle scouts in the world and you know and then becomes a barn raising daredevil fighter pilot and then oh and then he joined the navy and then he became a war hero and then he was tragically blinded but then resurrected himself with the power of his own sight and that was before he wrote Scientology, and that was a whole nother thing. You know, and it was like, right. and he wrote the greatest screenplays in the world, and he wrote the greatest books, and now he's the biggest author in the world. And then when you get to the end, and they have the unfolding walls that just peel back in front of you, and it's uh-huh. this glorious crescendo of music. And I, I really recommend everybody want to understand who Elron is mm-hmm. to a Scientologist. Go on that tour. You'll see 
that mm-hmm. it's it's basically this guy was either the greatest man on earth or a remarkable bullshit artist. So yeah, right. <laughs> yes, well, right. It's kind of so either. It, you know, it can go and kind of go either way, and I think that it might be a little bit of both. Where I think, I mean, I've met a couple of cult leaders, mm-hmm. and that's been an interesting. Part Who, which of my ones job. have you met? <laughs> What I have noticed is that some of them are, as you would put it, hucksters. They are uh-huh. th- they are very knowingly snake oil salesmen. Mm-hmm. Then there are the ones who have just lost their mind. That they they're they're so in their own reality that they draw people into their fantastical way of thinking and it becomes a shared psychosis a shared psychotic disorder you know where everyone sort of joins in with their psychosis and then you have the cult leaders i think who start out and realize that they're really good at this they really have a skill <laughs> and they're a pied piper and they didn't realize that people would do things just because they said to do them and people would be willing to make sacrifices just because they told them to make sacrifices. And I think it just plays on your ego and plays with your mind. And after a while, just like your followers, you lose a sense of what is real and what's not real, even about yourself. And mm-hmm. you, you, you know, sort of depart having that distinction between the fantasy and the reality. And you go into the land of whatever you've created. And... I think that, you know, I'd, I'd be very curious to know about L. Ron Hubbard and kind of what he was like when he was younger, mm-hmm. to know what led up to him needing this and being like this. I'm curious, are there any family tales about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's interesting is that L. Ron was not particularly a leader when he was younger. I mean, that if you look at a lot, I mean, obviously he had a high position when he got in the Navy and then was basically mm. kind of discharged for almost starting, you know, a whole new war with some phantom <laughs> undersea objects, which you can go and look into of, yeah, of why he left the Navy. He actually uh-huh. caused like almost a damn near international incident, dropping a whole gang of mines on on some sort of underwater phantom. Um, that's yeah. uh, you're right, and this is documentation. People, doc- I mean, this is documented. Fun. Like yes. much of the right. L. Ron Hubbard stuff, uh, when right. you're in the military, they generally kind of keep track of of what you did and mm-hmm. what you've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think with L. Ron is that he, outside of that, I mean, he was he was kind of a very classic kind of con man, hustler, guy who's like cheating on his wife. He's got like three side chicks. You know, he's running all over. He's always got scams going. He's, Mm. you know, writing these fantastical tales, which he can just churn out. So, I mean, his brain is is always going. I mean, what's the thing that always stuck with me is, is... that they would have publishers that wait downstairs and they could, you know, tell them at the front desk and they say, oh, we're here for the magazine. He was like, what what was the genre? And they would tell him it was a Western. He's like, all right, uh, give me an hour, you know, and he would just bang out a whole story, you know, and that he would write whole magazines under different names and and just that he had that kind of imagination Mm -hmm. and he had that sort of obsessive focus Mm -hmm. when it came to typing and just sheer verbiage. I mean, even if you look at the whole, you know, you know, lasting legacy of Scientology Mm -hmm. is this guy could type his ass off, you know, as to (laughs) what... 
what he was saying is one thing, but my God, yes, you know, I mean, right, even right. if he had a few ghostwriters, even in the end, this guy could churn out a page. And so in a weird way, that was always kind of a superpower mm -hmm. because even later, it's like if you get him one on one, he could be incredibly charming and go into his storytelling. But as he slowly became untethered, but I mean, over and over with Scientology, it's like he's just bludgeoning you with the sheer epidemic of pages you know just endless volumes pages this mm -hmm. you know this uh, i don't forget what do they call them in the scientology thing it's like you know it's like a not a missive but like a uh, you have to break the reports. He has like, you know, yeah, just daily yeah. updates and bulletins and all of this stuff, like just churning out nonstop. And mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I think though that, that what the real story of Elrond, um, is I believe that after the war and it's difficult to a certain when it really started. Um, but I think that he had a kind of a secret fetish and obsession with learning these occultic beliefs. Mm -hmm. And that by the time he met Jack Parsons, Jack Parsons said in his letters to Aleister Crowley that he was already familiar with many of these concepts. Okay. Um, so that, that Elrond had already delved into some of that world. And when he met Jack Parsons, um, he it was a combination of sort of that secret obsession with these different occultic beliefs. Um, mixed with his sort of charismatic con man skill set. Mm -hmm. um, and he proved that by basically stealing Jack Parsons' girl and like hustling <laughs> him out of some boats and hell of money. You know, so I mean like right. it was the perfect nexus. But I think also that it's so easy for us to get lost when Scientology starts, you know, when Dianetics starts in mm -hmm. 1950 to start thinking that as like, as at like the start of Elrond. But I mean, he was past 30 by that point. I mean, he was, he had been doing all kinds of hustles for a long time. And he'd been a storyteller for a long time. It was how he paid his rent. It was how he would get the ladies. Mm -hmm. You know, it's how that he would be able to leave his wife and his kids and then also get married to two women and be married at the same time right? because he, he always had this right. fictitious sort of backstory. So he always had that kind of con man skill set. And I think that he had a sort of sociopathic glee about it. And I think a lot of it was always just making himself the hero in his own mind that he was always writing about. I mean, later you can sort of trace his own fictitious exploits to many of the exploits that he even wrote about. So I think at some point yeah. they just melded in his mind. But I think that the most important uh, mini era that my grandfather, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., mm -hmm. really, really focused in on really surgically, and especially a, a lot of his memoir, which was, was never released, was about this era right before Dianetics. Because you think about it is that he meets Jack Parsons, mm -hmm. they do all of this uh, cultic sex magic. So he meets, <laughs> <laughs> and every time we get to this part of the story, um, when I start to explain it to someone, most people's eyes start rolling, uh -huh. right? They're like, okay. what is, well, come on, you know, it's like, Celtic sex rights and blah, 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 right? And, and I understand, I get that, right? It's like when you start mentioning Satanism or something like that, it's, it's because it has a vision in someone's mind of, of just these sort of absurd actions, yeah. Um, yeah. which are true. I mean, it's like them in, you know, robes going out to the desert with the candles and mm -hmm. doing the chants and the whatnot, but... I think they're missing the point. They're missing the point of why he was doing these actions. I don't care if he was throwing bones in the stand, sand or, you know, just playing dominoes or if he's like, you know, praying to a shadow. Mm -hmm. What matters is his intention behind it. And his intention 
on all of those actions and found in his diaries that uh, were found later by Jerry Armstrong and mm-hmm. his manifestos to himself, his affirmations to herself, were all about power. They're all about power to completely control yeah. and dominate other human beings. And that was why he was interested in this black occultic magic. It wasn't because he wanted to have sex in the sand. It's because he wanted to actually invoke these powerful forces and use other people as conduits so that he could seize this power so he could become a god on this plane. So whether or not you believe in any of that occultic magic or not, it doesn't matter because the fact is that he was doing these rituals and he was a fervent believer of them while still being a con bullshit artist that would still steal Jack Barson's girlfriend and run off to the other side of the world. And he still believed in it. So he was those things at the same time. He was someone who was hungry for this kind of personal power, would do anything that it took in order to gain it, and was also a con man, bullshit, bullshit, flim flam artist at the same time. And he was able to hold both of those in, in one mind. And that was very, very shortly before he wrote Dianetics. So, I mean, the fact was, is that he, it was a period of like maybe three years before it. And that gets so lost in the time. And that's what my grandfather was always uh, talking about. And he was always focusing on because when Mm. he, reconnected with his father, um, it was right at the start of Scientology. Well, really, the start of Dianetics. We also forget that Dianetics started as a science, and then he changed it into a religion Mm -hmm. when he realized, oh, it's America. I can just exploit the fuck out of that, and that's why we have where we're at now. Uh, I remember years ago, I had a guy who came into my office, and he he said, it doesn't matter who I am. Mm. I thought that was an interesting introduction. Um... (laughs) But I want you to know that I was working with L. Ron Hubbard in one of his Dianetics centers years ago, and he came in with a seamstress and told us that they were going to be taking our measurements to fit us with clerical collars and other wow kinds of... You know, the robes of uh, priests. And they they thought it was for... um, you know, some kind of costume party. They had no idea what was going on. <laughs> they didn't know they went from a scientist to a religious right. scholar overnight. I mean, I mean, the transition was that fast. It was literally like, you know, it was like day, you know, <laughs> yeah. Saturday, Saturday were a science, Sunday, hallelujah. You know I mean? It was, it was exactly. just... And, and he said that everyone started laughing when when they were told why they were being fitted for these different things. Mm-hmm. They thought it was a joke. They thought, oh, right. he has a good sense of humor. They all started laughing, and they saw that he was not laughing, and they realized he was serious. And that yeah. was an amazing turning point, but also especially because of tax exemption. You know, it's oh, changed course. their life. Well, they managed to abuse the religious protective rights of America that other countries it's not even the same. So they don't they don't even regard it as a religion. They, mm-hmm. they view it as what it is, which is a— pyramid financial scam Mm -hmm. with this sort of pseudoscience tied on top of it. And that's why I have no problem swinging on Scientology as much as Scientology will call everybody in this room and anybody listening to this room who can type in what is Scientology in their Google search engine and Uh do some research that anyone that comes against Scientology, the first thing they're going to throw is they're going to call me a religious bigot. And second, their favorite is to always call everybody a Nazi somewhere. Nazis usually come 
come up real quick in like mm-hmm. the, the paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have no problem smashing on Scientology because I don't view them as a religion. People are like, well, I mean, everybody should have their religious beliefs. And I'm like, it's not a religion. It didn't start as a religion. Mm-hmm. He acknowledged that he only switched it to a religion for a utilitarian purpose. I mean, it was, it was basically a shield and it started yeah. as a bullshit science. Yeah. yeah. Suppressive persons. And, and I mean, well, their favorite is in the public. SP is a very internal Scientology yeah. term, right? So that would only make sense to another Scientologist. But to the media, their defense of, you know, anybody that's coming after them is you guys are a destructive, fanatical, batshit, insane cult. And mm-hmm. they're like, how dare you? This is America. We have the right to believe in what we are. And these religious bigots. And the, I just remind them, like, not nah, you started as a bullshit science from a science fiction author who had apparently whose only real religious background was in occultic black sex magic so y'all need to sit the fuck down before you start talking about religious bigotry but let me get back to this one point because i I do think it's key because junior really focused on it a lot Mm -hmm. and it does get lost i think uh part of it is because the the narrative of of scientology exploded so rapidly from 1950 on but there's something to really keep in mind here, right? Is that he was doing these black occultic sex rites, mm-hmm. right? He had these hidden tomes that Junior writes about that, and that basically they're doing self-help exercises by day. And okay. then at night, he was indoctrinating his son into what they were truly doing. And what he said to his son over and over was that this is just black magic. I'm just camouflaging all of this stuff and I'm basically cloaking it in my own terms. We're changing the terminology, but the end result is still the same because if you look at, if you strip away all of the terminology of Scientology, which is an endless labyrinth and you talk to an ex-Scientologist, it's very difficult to find your way, Mm -hmm. um, especially if they just got out because Scientology, one of its principal strengths is by rewiring your vocabulary. You take away all of those tricks, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What is the end result of a perfect Scientologist is that you are someone who goes into hypnotic trances that is, uh, you know, all suggestive phrases and digging into your psyche that gets all of your sexual dirt and your secrets. Mm -hmm. I catalog it. I keep it. I own it. That the only person that mattered that wrote anything of substantial value is L. Ron Hubbard. All your money must go to L. Ron Hubbard, the greatest man that has ever lived. I mean, basically, they still make you a conduit for his power. So Mm -hmm. ultimately, his whole goal never changed. And in one year, he wrote Dianetics, got rich, and went completely broke, which is another thing that people forget, is that like he wasn't just like an amazing success story, is that he went broke. He had this vicious divorce battle with the woman that he stole from Jack Parsons. So she was Ah. absolutely a part of that whole black occultic, all that stuff. And she talks about the sex uh, rituals and things like that that he would force her to engage in. And what Junior talks about is it all boils down to this theology, which is that that they were had a very misogynistic kind of mindset. It was that women were viewed as conduits where you put them in trance-like states with a plethora of drug cocktails. You'd put them in these trance-like states. You would basically invoke these larger, darker powers, and you would use the woman in this trance-like state as a conduit, as basically a battery for you to like warm up and take charge of these powers so that you became a more dominant, godlike being. And this is what he was training his son in secret to do night after night. 
And Junior knew this and was this is what he was learning who his father really was. And when Junior left, that was when Elrond never talked about Aleister Crowley, never talked about mm-hmm. his occultic roots again. Mm-hmm. And I think it gets lost. I think it gets lost because it's really easy to turn our minds off and be like, ah, you know, it's a bunch of, I don't know, they're a bunch of desert and candles and it's a bunch of weird, right. weird right. shit. But I think of it, I, I try to paraphrase, paraphrase it this way. If someone was an Aryan neo-Nazi skinhead mm-hmm. for five years, mm-hmm. right? And they're going out and, you know, punching people in the face every weekend. And then two years later, they write a self-help book or like a self-defense book on how to defend yourself. And then you're like, well, what about the skinhead thing? You're like, oh, that was a while ago. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? I dropped those theologies. I I mean, I just, I fucking love the audacity of my great grandfather that when they nailed him on the Jack Parsons stuff, he had the audacity to say that he was a secret agent set in by the government to break up a black magic ring, which he did successfully. And that's, that's just, I always, I always just think that's amazing. If he was here, I would definitely give his ghost a high five for that. I was just like, (laughs) wow, that's, that's amazing defense. It's just like a boomerang. It is like Teflon. It's amazing. It just slides right off. We have pictures of you here at this black sex magic. Wow. I was undercover. I was there doing the American good work. Unbelievable. So when he would say things like that, do you think he believed it or he was just so good at the gift of gab? Boy, you know, I think that that's always the question. It's something I always reflect back to folks when I get asked in interviews, uh, I kind of has it a running joke, the, um, I'll, t- I'll, you know, I'll say to my friends, uh, even about a show like tonight, like, oh, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, oh, I'm going to do one of those uh, You Were Born interviews um, where, you know, some people, <laughs> right. if they're the wrong, not you, but I mean, some media people, they're like, wow, well, what was it like being born, you know, to <laughs> this guy? And you were born and wow, you just had no control over it. You're just born, connected to this guy. What's that like? And a lot of them don't dig deeper to what is it mm-hmm. actually like to mm-hmm. live in a family, to be born to a family that was put on the run and to also not really know what was the true story of the psyche of L. Ron Hubbard? Because this guy was a moving target. I've heard from ex-Scientologists, from people who knew him, worked with him personally. I've read every biography there possibly is. I've, you know, I mean, I've talked to as many people as possible to try mm-hmm. to understand what he was actually. Was he a 100% bullshit artist? Was there, I, I've heard everything from that. He was a paranoid schizophrenic to he was manic depressive to he was brutally sane and was just a complete sociopath. I've heard literally every shade all over the place, you know, megalomaniac narcissist, right? But I mean, at the same degree, it's like, I have his red hair, I have his genes. Me and my brother were both insane, motor mouth, (laughs) madmen, you know, at a very young age. And we were the only two redheads of my entire family. So it was like, to me, of of the cousins. So, and we both came out definitely hit with the mutant stick, you know, I mean, we were both came crazy little hellions. And Uh so to me, it's always been a person personal journey to try to understand who he was in an actual tangible way. Because that's the thing is that like, did he really believe it? You know what I mean? If he really believed it, then at some point, that means that he had to lose context with reality. But also, I mean, some of it like paranoid schizophrenic, that doesn't ring true to me because this guy was just banging out reams 
of yeah. of words every day, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, constantly and just churning it out and his defense mechanisms that he knew when to flee. He knew when even on a ship in the end days, when to leave port, when to get out of town, that when people were coming after him, that he knew to keep to his inner circle, that only his inner circle would know that they were in trouble or that he had to shield themselves from this or that. But at the same time, I think at some point near the end that he did lose even that grip because when Jerry Armstrong found all of his personal journals and everything else, Jerry Armstrong is a devout Scientologist, sent a message to him saying, I found all of your personal documents that could finally prove Mm -hmm. to the world that you really are who you say you are. That's Mm -hmm. what he really believed. And he said, I'd love to write a biography about you. Can I have your permission? And Elrond should have said, you found what? You need to burn that right now or send his agents to grab it. But he actually approved it and said yes and basically signed in an entire new phase where all of those journals of, you know, him decreeing that I will be a god and women will grovel at my feet and everything, it written in his own hand, ended up becoming state's evidence because of this amazing mistake. So, I mean, I think at some point that he had to lose his grasp um, somewhere along yeah. the way. But I mean, I think when he started, I mean, that's a that's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't see schizophrenia in him. I don't see him being so fragmented in that way. And I think that he was a genius. And I think that he, not to say that schizophrenics aren't, but that I think that there was something about him where he would go in and out of being reality-based. And I think because he was so good at telling himself certain stories and telling stories mm-hmm. it, he would just jump into his own story but I think also there are a lot of people who are just very good talkers yeah. um, and so they kind of know that they're going to be able to get out of things and they don't even get flustered and they don't even seem worried for a moment like even if they're being called by by the police or CIA or whatever else like yeah you know they they just have had the experience of getting away with things over and over and yeah. over again. You even see that in one of his last interviews where he literally denies that his second wife ever existed. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Which is easily, easily disprovable. I mean, the journalist is like almost even a little stunned. He's like, well, you've, you've exactly. you know, you've had three marriages and he's like, oh no, just the two, you know, and he's like, the journalist is, there's a pause where he's like, mm-hmm. I, uh, there was your second why? But it's like, no, just the two, you know, and, and yeah. I think what's also, this is an, you were talking about the, um, the stories, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, that also is, is a true explanation to the core, not only of who he was and what was driving him, because at a certain point he was a storyteller. He always was a storyteller ever since he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And at some point those stories that he was writing also merged with his own fictitious past mm-hmm. where anything that he failed at he ended up becoming a victorious you know hero in that situation he became a war hero he mm-hmm. graduated he was he was teaching the scientists what to do in the nuclear physics class and you know i mean a class mm-hmm. he like flunked out of and i mean he was able to re-spin every failure every disaster of his own into a story but also over time, and I'm sure there's some exes that would maybe disagree quite passionately if they're even listening, mm-hmm. would be that he actually is encouraging all of Scientology, uh, every Scientologist to become a storyteller in their own right by putting them in these sort of hypnotic trances 
where you're inventing your past lives and that they can be as fictitious and as vivid and as detailed as you possibly want them to be going back trillions of years, any way you want, any kind of, you can be a criminal, a hero, a, you know, any life form, you can be uh, different steps of the evolutionary chain, right. you know, so I mean, in a way he kind of infected you with his own you know, vendetta for like storytelling in a way where it's like everybody has their own storytelling. And, and, and I think that he made, he, he had that classic same, uh, you know, cult leader defense that, uh, even, you know, Jim Jones had in the end, which is basically the defense is the circular logic of whatever's true for you is right, true, true. Right. That's and right. you know, yeah. Jim Jones in the end is that right. he was basically like, um, whatever we need to do by any means yes. that we need to to achieve to convince people if we need to do a few carny tricks and pretend that someone has a tumor and have them come back in with the you know, some chicken hearts or some liver yeah, that, that exactly. Jim Jones would do. Because Jim Jones would do some vaudeville bad carniacs, uh -huh. you know, have someone come in in blackface in a wheelchair and jump up and pretend they're healed. And I mean, ridiculous, comical stuff. And he was even doing it all the way near the end. Mm -hmm. Right. And, mm -hmm. and he would tell his inner circle, well, we have to do this because I don't want to exhaust all of my, my true magical powers, but we need to do it to, you know, to convince people, whatever it takes, it's like whatever's necessary for the greater good. And that is how you always justify yes. Yes. systematic fucking evil is that yes. nobody ever thinks that they're doing something evil, but you're like, look, I, I know this is uncomfortable. You know, I know that you're a good person and you don't want to do this thing, yeah. but we have to do it for the greater mm -hmm. good. You know what I mean? So right. if we have to bug uh, and terrorize this politician, this ex-member, uh, even this dirty trickery, you know, if we have to do that and try to destroy someone's life, it's because we're trying to protect Scientology that is ultimately going to save the world. Are you going to let this person destroy the world? Right. right. You know, we're doing this for everybody. So the end's just justify the means and right. justify the means right. and and that's yeah. literally that that's how i think in the end that he rationalized got away with his lies and also man i just think that he really loved it i i mean it's just you yeah, can kind of see this kind of sport you know that he kind of got off on it like the twinkle in his eye yeah, you exactly. can see it there in that last interview he just he's like oh you know and that <laughs> crazy old voices is you know there there's so much about him that uh that i have also learned about just from how he ran his organization, you mm. learn a lot about um, cult leaders and what their emotional needs are mm. by the rules they set in place in their organizations. So this big push against the reactive mind. Okay, mm. I haven't met a group of people who are more reactive than Scientologists. Okay? <laughs> like It is so ironic that uh -huh. here they're in this group that you know, you're supposed to be against the reactive mind, and and wow, they're really reactive. <laughs> um, and so uh, I remember actually, as an aside to my aside, um, years ago I was running a former cult member support group here in LA, and two Scientologists showed up to say they wanted to be a part of it. They were they one said that she's a former Jew, and the other one said she, he's a former Catholic. And their current Scientologists, and the reason they were coming in was really to what year was this? gain information. Uh, this was in the early 90s. This was a long time ago. So the, but it's still, I mean, but this is, this is even way after the Guardian's office was. Yes. I mean, so these are 
Osa Asians, basically. Yes, and they wanted, and they were um, trying to introduce themselves and get information, and and I told them that they couldn't be a part of it, so they tried to sue. On uh, the grounds of religious persecution. That's exactly what you were saying. Because you're a religious bigot. Yeah, right. So religious bigot. Right. I always want to counter that, like, no, I just don't like junk science. I don't <laughs> believe the earth is fucking flat, and I don't think that L. Ron Hubbard discovered some fucking sacred texts right. sent from space. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, probably not. <laughs> right. So here they are, and they're just like hooting and hollering and making such a loud noise and making such a fuss. And, and I wanted to say, you know, Good job on that whole reactive. Yeah, whole your reactive poker face is <laughs> yeah, right. not it's so really, strong, young really Jedi. Working I, well for you. But I think that shows something about Elrond. Mm. That, if I can call him Elrond. Um, but uh, but he, it Just shows don't call him LRH. That still creeps me out. LRH? Just when I hear LRH, because it's, it's a very just a Scientologist oh, way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some people say LRH, and, and even when they're ex-members, I've, I've told it. I mean, I, you know, of course, like I'm hallelujah for anybody that is able to escape Scientology. Right. I'm just saying there's something always about it that's like, you know, or when I hear him called source, you know, and I'm just oh. like, ah, oh. so it makes yeah, my skin yes. crawl. I'm sure that's the heebie-jeebie. <laughs> Call him El Papi. El Papi. <laughs> so, El Papi. Um, it sounds to me like he could not tolerate it really being questioned. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. And so he had to set up a situation kind of in this like trickled down narcissism where you you make sure that nobody questions you you make sure that nobody takes you to task and that if they have a problem with something that you have said that's on them if you say something and it doesn't make sense well they weren't opening their minds up. They didn't understand it. They didn't it. understand it or whatever. So you yeah. need a new course to understand Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> what I said. Exactly. You're and like, well, what you said didn't make any sense. Right. You're like, no, it made perfect sense. You just can't comprehend it because you're not there yet. Yes, right. <laughs> you but need more training, class, which you right? need to pay me for. We have a class for that. It's amazing. It's, I mean, it's yeah. amazing. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, what stuns me about Scientology and, and, and Chris Shelton is – brilliant in the way he breaks this down. Same with John Atack, of course, as well. Um, but is that there are so many mechanisms mm-hmm. that they have in Scientology that are built in that make it so successful at this systematic brainwashing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, it's like step by step. Like in a way, you almost couldn't have designed a more perfect poison than that mm-hmm. because it uses literally every little step that I mean I'm sure you've seen from other cults where you're like you can identify certain aspects you know yeah. I mean they have everything but I mean they throw in this kind of hierarchy and this like secret society aspect to it yes. and then this buying in of, of you know moving your steps and then they also add in the kind of paranoia the internal paranoia of it. So you have this social pressure and fear of getting outed by, you know, your own members and sort of turning on each other and, and, you know, those type of tactics, which also keep people in line and also the, the constant moving forth of the grand prize, you know, though I heard, I I read today that, uh, Alley finally achieved OT level eight. Mazel tov, as the we truth say in the revealed. <laughs> the truth revealed. Well, I mean, what amazes me is when wow. someone reaches OT level eight, and you're like, mm. "You're there. You hit it. Yeah. You hit the grand prize, Legend of Zelda. You beat the game. You are in the very final boss. Mm-hmm. You're there. Mm-hmm. And what 
that feeling of doubt that has to happen for any fucking rational person. If you have any shred of it left, right. where you finally reach the end of the rainbow and you're like, damn, this is it. This is it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I got everything that Elrond left us and nothing can be added to this. And he left us everything and he died. And right when he was done with his work to go float on in the galaxy. And, and this is what I'm going to learn in, in the whole nine. Right. And just that hollow feeling that has to happen, you know, That's for, right. oh, for, yeah. for some of them, because if you have that doubt, how crippling it must be for someone to have to admit to themselves that they have wasted all of that money, all of those years, right. hundreds of thousands of hours thrown into a hole to feed this guy's ego, ult- right. ultimately. Um, right. you know. Yeah. I mean, there are some clients of mine have, have given me some visuals on that. Like they uh, talk about walking up these steps, you know, because there's always the bridge, right? Mm-hmm. That's so you're walking up these steps. Uh, uh, and Which it is. It's up. a pyramid. That's what I always explain it. You throw uh-huh. the bridge on the side, it turns exactly into a, into pyramid, a pyramid, right? It becomes right. so obvious what a scam it is. And so they go up to the top after many years, after the sweat of their brow, after se- making so many sacrifices. And they open the door to this momentous sort of um, kind of this watershed moment, and it's just a brick wall. There's nothing mm. there. It's just, they can't go through it. It's, they're still just as stuck as they were before. It, you know, it's reminding me too that there, Man, that's horrible. there's a cassette. Uh, that's so this, that's so horrible. Uh, yeah, it is real. It is a horrible <laughs> thing. There's a cassette where Elrond is quoted as saying, um, if you want to enslave people, people, you need to promise them total freedom. And then mm-hmm. he built the bridge to total freedom. When did you say that? Oh, I'll have to get that for you. Yeah, please yeah. do. Uh, I, I mean, every, yeah. everything in Scientology is opposite day. I mean, it's, yeah. it's basically, he's like, I'm, I'm basically empowering you to become a god, you know, and to have power over mm-hmm. matter, energy, space, mm-hmm. and time, right? That's, correct me if I'm wrong mm-hmm. uh, out there. The mest, right? I mean, I'm, I'm literally right. giving you the keys to become your own god. But for you to become God, you need to pay me about two hundred fifty thou, and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to need you to not research anything on this religion, and please don't ask about it. And uh, you know, yes. if someone is is telling you not to give me two hundred fifty thou, they need to go, uh, and we're just going to move you over here in this this little room with just us, and the you know, but we're setting you on the road to freedom. And I mean, some of them, I mean, they're so trapped. I mean, yeah. I get asked a lot, like. You know, obviously, I'm coming in here with my acidic forked tongue, and and mm-hmm. I give no fucks swinging on Scientology and want nothing more than that empire to fall. I've also just gotten past the point of being polite about it. Yeah. Um. You know, a lot of times uh, people are like, "Well, you know, everyone needs to believe what they need to believe." I'm like, "No, fuck that. They're a predatory criminal organization. They devour people. I've met too many people who've lost their entire families and have had their lives completely destroyed by." a fucking monster that my family helped create. So whatever I can do to end that Mm. shit show fairy tale, I will do. But so I have no problem swinging on Scientology as an organization um, because as an organization, they can't change um, because it's fixed because it's all this sort of Elrond's id just manifesting itself 
over and over, his reactive mind, excuse me, to <laughs> use his own words, just yeah. manifesting itself over and over. But I have endless compassion um, and, and just horror and, and so much sadness for everybody that's still inside. Mm. You know, even the OSA members that are, could be stalking us right now, you know, the ones that have stalked me, the fact that mm-hmm. they, they, they are so sold on this that they can actually split their own mind to stalk Elron Hubbard's great grandson, you know what I mean? And yeah. to follow me, to never look into what I'm saying, to never like question why why they're following me. You know, what I mean, why are we trying to destroy these people? Yeah. You know, and and they're able to have that block. And that to me is is so sad. It is so um, sad. You know I know I mean? also and, when they've tried to have my counseling license taken away and they've had me followed and they've done a lot. Uh, had their PIs uh, sicked on me and followed me back and forth from work. Yeah, and I mean, I they're, think, they like, are. What am I doing? I'm just offering terrifying. a place where people can come and talk about their experience. But yeah, I will definitely get you that quote about the bridge to total freedom. It's along around the same time that he did a lot of these cassette recordings, like, if you want to make a million dollars, you have to start your own religion. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which actually, yeah. I mean, from everything I'm read, and anybody can correct me if I'm wrong, but. That wasn't like a, a sweet little, you know, joke he said at a dinner party. Mm-hmm. Like he said this multiple times, like mm-hmm. over a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is a guy like walking around in LA, like telling everybody about a screenplay like he's working right. on, you know. It's <laughs> like, ah, uh, you know what we really need to do is I got this great movie I'm working on. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, he had something, but that's the thing too, is that people they really forget that for like three years this guy was was enmeshed mm-hmm. in different kinds of very dark theology. And it does not matter if you believe in demons and smoke and mirrors and if you think Aleister Crowley was just another Anton LaVey. That doesn't matter. What matters is that he was steeped in this and Dianetics came right after that. You know, so I mean, where did he get that from? Where did he, and, and it makes a lot more sense of what Junior was saying is that he wanted to, take some of these same techniques and learn how to manifest them on other people. And basically in a way, almost mm-hmm. use people as his guinea pigs, mm-hmm. you know, to basically see what he could use and everything else. And I think in some ways it could have just been a phase. Like if, if Dianetics didn't crack the way that it did, yeah. maybe it just would have been another little phase of like, oh, this year, you know, last year I'm, I'm the, you know, occult magician. I'm Aleister Crowley of America. And then next year I am uh, the great scientist who's going to learn how to crack human behavior. And then like, if that didn't fail, then he could have been like, I'm an amazing farmer and I have these agricultural genius ideas, you know? I mean, it's who, who knows? Right. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, so, so a couple, just a couple other things before we finish up. I'm, I'm curious about, uh, I'm curious about your mom. What's mm. your mom like? Uh, my mom, my mom. So my mom was the first child of L. Ron Hubbard Jr. Mm-hmm. And what's heartbreaking is the way she always said it to me and always just stuck to me kind of like a knife is she was like, I lost my father and my grandfather to this creature that they mm. created that ultimately consumed them both. She was like, all I wanted was a dad but instead I had a dad who was at war with his dad, you know, uh, and that they were fighting in this war that was so dangerous and threatening 
me and my life. She's like, I just wanted a normal life more than anything, you know? And I think that people really don't understand what that's like. It's that it's it's not just being related to some funny, trivial pursuit question. You know what I mean? It's it's that it's so hard for me to even because one, how would I know what it's you know like to be born in another family? I can only sure. guess. But I mean, to my mom and my aunts and uncles, they never went on the record about it. They avoided all media. They have all managed to create vital, amazing lives. And, you know, my cousins are incredible and we have a big family Mm -hmm. and um, that they, you know, they had to change their names. A lot of them went in the military. So they got asked hard questions early Mm -hmm. on over and over, you know, hey, uh, aren't you L. Ron Hubbard? We are going to talk about this L. Ron Hubbard guy who also is infiltrating all the branches of our government currently, right? I mean, this is real shit that, right, right. that they had to deal with. And so that legacy and learning how to sever their lives mm-hmm. um, from, from this, this monster that we created and that was two generations helped fuel and was also part of their entire lives. I mean, their father was, you know, in and out, then fighting and then yeah. out and then in and, you know, and all of it back and forth. And that was their grandfather too. They didn't have another grandfather and this guy was gone. You know, he's vanishing, he's on the run. You know, he's sending agents to stalk them. Um, you know, my, my Aunt Katie, you know, she loved her father and her father left her like he left everybody else, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, uh, yeah, my mom really tried to raise us outside of that shadow. And instead she got cursed with this little redhead loudmouth maniac who <laughs> just starts poking around and then just <laughs> starts running into the dragon's cave and just mm-hmm. being like, hey, I hear there's a dragon in here. And, you know, and, and starts... Uh, recoiling at the smell of sulfur. So, I mean, a lot of my family has been very, very supportive of me um, in speaking Good. out. And, you know, that they know that it's it's really in my blood and that it it is sort of a, I feel like it's a duty that, I mean, I, I owe it mm. to all of the children that have been destroyed and continue to be destroyed by this church. And if I, you know, if I go into a podcast and I say some jokes, but I, I will just as remorselessly, you know, remind the world of how dangerous they are and where the root of all of this evil is, no matter if it's running through my blood, no matter if it gave me my red hair and my writing skills and whatever Mm -hmm. else is that, that I have to atone for my family's sins. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, something that I will be doing uh, for the rest of my life and, you know, in wow. all different different ways. I mean, That's this is actually good. the first time I've even talked about Scientology in a good, probably about a year okay. or so on the record. Um, there's a few people who know why, but um, there's a lot that may be coming out sometime soon or maybe the bad guys won. I'm not sure yet, mm. but uh, I mean, I went to war with them. I went to the trenches and I was hunted day and night, and it fucks your head up. I mean, it it really does. Can I mean, it's it's one that? thing it's one thing to say, it's one thing to you know people to make the jokes about Zenu and Tom Cruise and whatever. Yeah. It's another to have 
tinted window cars fucking following you in the middle of the night and to realize how easy you know that you can just get grabbed thrown in a car or how easy your phones can get tapped or how mm-hmm. easy that you know they can come after you with with whatever they got and um so wow yeah so i mean i mean um i'm getting back to my kind of scrappy scrappy instincts um that's and so there's there's a lot more really coming hard. out but i mean okay. i i honestly feel like i i have a lot more to say and i have a lot more to do i just i just hit a point that i think a lot of people who've um, you know, have had to fight against the church that it's like they they want to break you. And um, I just got to a point where it was also just like, okay, I, I need to remind myself that there's joy in this world and that it's not an endless war. And I mean, fuck, I'm a, you know, I'm a performer, I'm a filmmaker, I'm, a, I'm in a clown troupe for fuck's sake. Like, I have a great life, you know, doing vaudeville and hosting yeah. circuses and doing a lot that is has nothing to do with, you know, fighting against this kind of venomous shadow of Sorry. my family's legacy. But at the same time, I don't think that this is my daughter's job. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is my cousin's job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it just, it was just a weird roll of the dice that it just got kind of handed to me. It's like, it's, it's almost like I got handed this sort of bloody gun and got told to hide it. You know, well, and right. I think <laughs> I mean it becomes sort of this perfect storm, right? Because it also connected with your conscience, right? And you have, I think, this sense of kind of guilt by association, and you want to be able to do something about that. You want to be able to do something with that. You want well, to be able to I, make I'm just, a difference. I've seen, I've seen their damage, yeah, like in front in front of my face. I mean, I've I've held family members who have lost their family right. to something that that we created like it's it, to me it's it's not a joke it's not a fun mm. trivia thing it's not like oh hey i'm related to a right, no, no. you know a wacky outlaw it's like no i mean this is this is that by me speaking out is i'm trying to erode the myth that elron created about himself okay. and i am walking evidence that he was a liar and that mm-hmm. the truth of his family was never fully told and so that's that's what I got to do. So I just to finish up too. I think there's so much that you do that is in an effort to make the world a better place and also to do some healing for yourself for your family. Mm. Um, but also you mentioned before about Scientology being a misogynistic kind of place, and it mm. is. Uh, I'm thinking about the silent births, you know, where women have to be totally silent while giving birth uh, because <laughs> if they that. make any sound at all, that is a <laughs> kind of negative energy that's going to go into your baby, et cetera, et cetera, so that women are at the root of all problems with children. Um, you know, a <laughs> little piece of information Was ever like even at a birth? Right? And so, you know, this was all created by people Chris who knew Shelton, nothing I'm poking about nothing. You. I'm poking you, Chris Shelton. <laughs> and Tony Ortega, if you're listening, uh-huh. you have to find out these little factoids yeah. for me. So here you are as a dad of an 18-year-old <laughs> girl <laughs> who you love. L. Ron Hubbard's great, great grandchild. Right? Uh-huh. And so how are you making sure to raise her with what kind of ideas and ideals? Well, it's really as much as I can with everything that I do in my life, from the show that I run to the writing workshops that I teach to how I talk to my daughter is I try to just be real and encourage. I try not to be full of shit. I, as ugly as I 
can be, is have to be, you know what I mean? That a lot of my writing is about all kinds of disastrous things that have happened in my life, you know, from, uh, you know, doing heroin to suicide attempts to, uh, you know, wanting to blow up my high school. I mean, like I've approached a lot of ugly subjects that people would not talk about. I'm trying to do the opposite of what L. Ron Hubbard did and not ever portray myself as a hero. I portray myself as just a real person who has troubled, struggled, has tried to redeem themselves. You know, I was someone that could have absolutely, you know, been on a path to prison or become a criminal um, before I was 18 easily. And mm -hmm. I ended up becoming the guy that goes into prisons and does writing workshops with mm -hmm. inmates. And that doesn't mean I'm a fucking saint, you know, um, by any means, but by my daughter and, and everything is, I've always just encouraged her to be absolutely true to herself. Um, to be critical, look at everything with a critical eye, even me, um, mm -hmm. to be as honest with her as I possibly can. And I mean, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I, I, I stopped talking to my daughter like she was a child at like the age of four. And uh, she's whip smart anyways. And so, I mean, we've had such an awesome relationship um, forever, really, because I would always just talk to her as, you know, as an equal as much as I could. That's and nice. uh, she ended up becoming a performer uh -huh. and she's a she's an actress in New York. Um, so wow. I guess I guess some of the family, some of the actual family biz before it took this demonic detour, right, right. I yeah. think is is actually that um, that were storytellers and mm -hmm. that were kind of con men and pirates and you know to me be, being a performer to me is is being a con man and a storyteller mm -hmm. but that we're all in agreement that this is a show that I'm yes. doing this for a reason this is for entertainment or this right. is to illuminate something or I'm trying to make a point it's not just to fatten my pockets and manipulate exactly. you you know exactly. or make myself into something that's more Heroic, and so exactly, yeah. The demarcation, what makes something healthy or not healthy, is usually the intention. I hope. I mean, I yeah, I hope. Right, because it can be <laughs> the same talent, the same gift, right? But the reason that you're doing it, it can be vastly different. Um, so imagine how my mom felt when she saw me, you know, starting to to write and perform against them, you know, because sure. I felt that it was owed. I mean, one of the most moving moments to me was my grandmother. Junior's wife, who's now dead, that she finally saw my performance, The God and the Man. Um, and, you know, just that she was proud of it and that she encouraged me to keep going meant so much to me because I had no idea how my grandmother would feel that I'm, I'm writing the story that I'm saying to millions of people mm -hmm. about her husband. And she used to be Elrond's typist, you know what I mean? That she knew these people. And so the fact that she felt that I was um, doing my grandfather proud meant, meant everything. That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here. It was a total pleasure to talk to you. Hope we get to do it again. Thank you. Um, and so... Uh, let me know and let uh, let our listeners know what you're working on now or where they can find you and where they can see all of your wonderful artistic endeavors. My wonderful and sometimes dirty and sometimes obscene and sometimes shocking and powerful and emotional, <laughs> uh, all of the things. Um, you can go to jamiedewolf.com. Um, I have a lot of my performances there and as well as my films. I direct 
a ton of films, everything from dark comedies to um, really hard-hitting social arts activism and, and social issues. Um, but you can find those on my website, and my album, Bod Villain, is on iTunes. Awesome. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thank Good you. Good to talk to you. Thanks for getting all these people out of cults for so many years. Uh, you're welcome. It's a high five. <laughs> <laughs> nice. At the end of March, the founder of a group called Nexium, Keith Ranieri, was arrested. This man, who went by the name The Vanguard, which reminds me of L. Ron Hubbard's moniker, The Commodore, demanded complete obedience from his followers. Some of his followers branded some of the other followers with a design incorporating his initials as a tribute to him. That's horrific. Clearly a sociopath clearly a pathological narcissist, and unfortunately, clearly, a genius in manipulation. I doubt he's suffering. I doubt he's suffering for the reasons that other people might suffer. He's probably only suffering because he was caught. Narcissists only feel righteous indignation. They don't feel guilt. They go through life saying, how dare they? How dare they see me this way, criticize me, not believe in me? How dare they not see how wonderful I am and what a gift I am to this world? They don't say, how dare I? How could I have done this? How dare I feel so entitled to mistreat people and abuse people? But interestingly, and this is where it really parallels Jamie DeWolf's sentiments, when you have a conscience and therefore a driving, burning sense that you need to do something to help and protect others, Jamie actually really feels that deeply that because of what his great-grandfather L. Ron Hubbard has done, because of his actions, because of what he created, Jamie DeWolf, while empowered by it, also suffers with that legacy. And it usually is the case that it's the victims in these stories who are the ones who suffer. The ones who suffer are the followers who disconnected from their families and friends, who dropped out of school, who felt that they had to show their obedience and show their allegiance by not visiting their sick parent in the hospital, by not going to people's weddings, by not going to people's funerals who were not members of the group and therefore not as important to spend time with. The followers who truly believed in it all, who because of that mistreated other fellow members because they were told to, or were so convinced or really wanting to make sure that the leader believed they were convinced that they were very successful in recruiting family and friends into the very cult that they were able to get out of, but now can't get their families and friends out. Those who suffer are the neighbors who knew something wrong was happening in the house next door or the building next door, but didn't want to get involved and now know they should have. Those who suffer are the next generations who would never treat people that way, but carry the legacy through their DNA. But they're not the guilty ones. They're the wonderful ones. They're the ones who also know the difference between right and wrong. They are the ones, though, who carry the weight of a burden placed on their shoulders by the people who did not care about the pain they caused. I'll talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. 
Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or strugglesession.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.